with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Everybody, good afternoon, everyone, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, finding one's courage to reclaim that which has always been in you from the very, very beginning. Very excited to be with you here today and every other Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, and uh, any other time in between. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a quick second. I am Dr. James Hauk, and if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, please visit the website at www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. That's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. And if you'd like to be part of the live show today, I invite you to use the toll-free number to call in. It's uh, 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls and uh, after the break in the second half of the show. And uh, these broadcasts are podcasted in case you want to go back and listen again or in case you can't spend the whole hour with me or if you want to go back in and just take a look at the archives and uh, listen to previous shows. They are, uh, you know, make, you can do that. Just go on the website and you'll find um, the archive section and you're free, you're free to do that. And it's also um, these uh, podcasts are available for download using, you know, the Audible or Amazon Music app. Well, welcome to today's show. It's a creative dialogue with our ancestors so that the people will live in hope. Okay, and that's kind of a broad title, but uh, as we go on today, hopefully you'll be able to see, you know, just that it captures uh, just people in general. You know, we say ancestors, but it's not just a past, present, future kind of thing. But it's uh, this, this dialogue that extends all beyond uh, time and space. Because most of the time when people think of their ancestors, they think of their current extended family. You know, they think about their brothers, their sisters, cousins, you know, mothers, fathers, grandparents, great-grandparents, so on and so on. Okay. But uh, because the whole concept of listening to our ancestors and learning from our ancestors and even talking to our ancestors is just too bizarre of a concept for many people to grasp. I mean, after all, there's only so much that Ancestry.com can do. Okay. In fact, once we've exhausted all of our family tree and um, just seen that for what it's worth, what else is there to read about? Well, it does matter a great deal because too many people uh, struggle with the underlying effects of intergenerational trauma that may have occurred decades, if not centuries ago. And it does matter, um, 
you know, the, the effects that we have to deal with, even though we may not have been around during the time when the initial trauma was, had taken place. Uh, but it doesn't matter where we were born or even into what family you know, we were placed. Um, sooner or later, we're going to have to realize that our world is just filled with relationships. That's something that everybody, regardless of race, color, creed, nationality, um, language, norms, customs, and so forth, everybody is in relationship with one another. In fact, we're often social beings who spend our lives trying to make sense out of our world by trying to find our place in the world. And as social beings, it's often within the context of relationships that we have experienced tremendous pain and suffering. And this is where the intergenerational trauma can come in right there. Um, and these, uh, you know, the pain and suffering we may have experienced or our ancestors may have experienced uh, may come from overt acts of betrayal or cruelty that somebody has afflicted on us or them um, to simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and whatever that looked like way back when the initial trauma had taken place. But still, Many people continually bear the scars of the physical, psychological, emotional, and even spiritual woundedness. So as I'll be talking about just in, in this show uh, is basically about how we tell those stories. How do we share those stories about, you know, where have we come from or whom have we come from? Who are our people? Who are the ones we feel strongly connected to and so forth? But again, it's how we tell those stories. I mean, do we, do we tell these stories from a place of woundedness inside of ourselves, or a place of disappointment and frustration? And depending on how long we've been carrying, you know, this trauma around or this brokenness around, we might even tell our stories from a deeper place of bitterness and just intense, intense struggle. And yet there's this huge irony that's out there for people to just, fully grasp here and it's just as we experience our woundedness in relationships it's also within the context of healthier relationships that we can find our greatest source of healing we can find our voice we can reclaim our authenticity and so forth and the difficulty then is often finding the courage to discover that which has always been in you your healing your voice, your authentic self, and so forth. And we all have gifts and graces and skills and uniqueness that we have come into the world with. And it's uh, the Scottish uh, Franciscan, uh, John Dunn Scotus, who lived eh, around 1300s. He coined the phrase or the word hachetas. It's uh, this-ness. That's uh, our own uniqueness, as it were, that nobody else has any other kind of thisness except us. So, you know, if, if there's any Marys out there, it's like, you know, live according to your Maryness, or John's, live according to your Johnness, or James, live according to your Jamesness, because nobody else can do that but you. But what we do have in common is we come into this world with all those gifts and graces and skills and that hachayatos, that uniqueness. 
because I'm a firm believer also that we come into this world with everything that we need for ourselves and for others. But through our various experiences, um, let's say our traumatic experiences or even intergenerational trauma, maybe without us ever being aware of it, we've given away parts, if not the whole, of our uniqueness or our thisness. And this could be, you know, anything, you know, related to we, you know, growing up, we didn't feel as though we could live up to another person's expectation of us. Or perhaps we hid that uniqueness, that hachetas from others in order to survive abuse. Or maybe it was those aspects of ourselves have been taken away from us and we didn't have the strength to fight back. Well, either way, when we become aware that we have done these things, it takes tremendous courage then to reclaim who we are, to go back and reclaim those those pieces of ourselves that we have been taken from us or that we have been given or we have given away, I should say. And we can reclaim our voice, our uniqueness, our thisness. And when this occurs, we soon discover that we're going to begin to tell our stories of transformation from a different place in us, a place of healing, a place of wholeness, a place of gratitude. And this is still um, a question, or I should say something that uh, my clients wrestle with, you know, in, in various sessions, clinical sessions that we have, is that how do you know you're getting better? How do you know that you're healing? How do you know when a transformation is taking place? And I always point them to, well, how are you telling your stories these day, these days? Uh, because it's uh, one of these areas in which, you know, growing up, I'm sure most of us have uh, heard our family stories and even, you know, ancestral stories um, ever since we were young and by maybe teenage years or early 20s or something. We've heard them so many times that we could tell them verbatim, you know, just by sheer repetition of every family gathering or picnic or something party, whatever. We heard these stories over and over again, and we picked up on them. And we just, without giving it any thought, so to speak, we begin to tell our story and we wrap those stories or we connect to those stories that have been told to us without giving it any thought of how we're telling those stories. And it's, if we're paying attention every now and then, we can hear how other people have told us those stories in how we tell our story. In other words, uh, we could tell our stories from a place of pain and woundedness, and we even may use the same inflection in our voice. Or in certain parts of the story, we find ourselves tearing up, or we find ourselves becoming angry. And it's as if, you know, to tell the story correctly, we have to get just as angry as when we first heard the story told in anger to us. Okay, so you can tell that healing has taken place within you when you begin to tell your stories from a place of healing, wholeness, and gratitude. You'll still remember the facts and figures and everything else. I mean, that's part of our long-term, short-term memory. But again, where is the tone? How do you tell those stories? That makes all the difference in the world because, you know, when we find that place of healing and wholeness and gratitude in ourselves, 
you know, it just, the stories take on a different meaning. The, the stories take on a different tone. The stories come from us in a deeper place of gratitude. And it, it is quite noticeable to those who listen to our stories. Well, every now and then I run into this misperception out there today that before you can help others, you have to be free from your own pain and suffering, you know, for to first be healed from your own problems, or at least you got to have your act together. In fact, I, I heard this uh, this week, and um, it's always one of these sayings or these perceptions that just kind of strike me as odd. Um, you know, and some people often follow up, you know, by misquoting Jesus's teaching about taking the plank out of your own eye first before removing the speck of sawdust from another person's eye. Okay. I've, I've just heard that teaching and that lesson many, many times. So um, often people use that as an excuse, like, well, I can't do this and such because I have to get my act together first. And although there is a kernel of truth to that, it seems as though people, as I said, use that as an excuse, but they realize, they don't realize, I should say, that they have so much more to offer than the problems that they are dealing with even today. And this is simply not the case, you know, um, that in spite of themselves, people do find ways to reach out to serve others and to offer emotional healing and support to somebody else, that whatever the need is like, don't worry, I can help. I'm, I'm there for you. I can listen. I can be there for you. So do you have to have your act together before you reach out to somebody? No, um, by, by no means, uh, because there's this wonderful understanding that I go back and forth on all the time. It's like, which comes first? Is it the transformation of a person and then they transcend or they go beyond their limitations? Or do we transcend, go beyond our limitations, and that um, leads us to our own transformation? Well, it's actually a both and. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say where one picks up and the other leaves off. But this understanding that you have to wait to a certain time in your life before you do something, uh, before you'd always want to do whatever it is that was on your heart or is on your heart, um, is just I think just an inaccurate way of looking at things. Um, because just, you know, for example, consider the number of people in your life who have helped you along the way. You know, people who you may have known who spoke, you know, just simple words of comfort and grace or have healed you on some level with their kindness and, and just different ways they, they touched you. Um, now, did these people seem to have their acts together or did they just do in spite of their perceived limitations? Did they wait until they had their acts together before reaching out or did it appear that they just reached out? and comforted, and gifted others. Well, I'm certain that we can make a long list of people who fit that description. I know I can. I know I can. And that's just the people we are aware of. You know, what about others who work quietly behind the scenes? People that we may never meet, but we would notice if there was a huge gap without them. Well, let's take this idea one step further. Would you be willing to add your name to that list? 
I mean, do we believe that before we can comfort and reach out to others that we have to make sure our front porch is swept clean, so to speak? And not necessarily, okay? And ironically, this very idea is echoed in Henry Nouwen's book, The Wounded Healer. It is, is it a classic. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. Um, Henry Nouwen, The Wounded Healer. And uh, in this book, he raises the question, do we have to wait until we are fully healed from our past, our wounds, and our shortcomings? If the answer is no, then what are we waiting for? But truth be told, we all have psychological, emotional, physical, even spiritual wounds and scars. And these wounds and scars refer to what we have gone through. You know, those reminders of where we have been, but not to serve as excuses that we can make to justify, let's say, our anger or our bitterness or even our prejudices. But rather, our woundedness can offer, you know, can often serve as a means to awaken compassion and empathy in us towards one another. And this is really a deep, deep, deep level of understanding our woundedness. Like, what purpose do those wounds serve? What lessons do we have yet to grasp? I mean, not, a lot, not everybody can go there and ask those questions when looking at their emotional or psychological wounds because it just doesn't make sense. It kind of flies in the face of just plain logic of, you mean I had to suffer in order to learn something? Well, that's, that's another question to raise. But that's all part of, you know, are we all that, you know, we see in the mirror? But isn't there more to us than what we have yet become already? And absolutely. So again, everything, everything that we've been through, uh, our, our woundedness, our celebrations, our joy, uh, our disappointments, our frustration, everything about us. And yet, how does our hachetas or this uniqueness come shining through in our presence to be able to reach out to others? And despite living in the 21st uh, century, uh, there are still huge pockets of people who are considered by society as, well, you don't want to hang around those people. You know, they're untouchable. They're unreachable. They're unlovable. You know, and I, whenever I hear this or whenever I see examples like that, I just, the first thing that pops into my mind is, who are these people that make these so-called rules? Who sets these boundaries? Who sets this partition? You know, lines may be drawn on a map to mark boundaries, but who draws those same lines on our hearts? And yet, I also want to throw out this little caveat, this caution at this moment, that we do have to be careful that in reaching out to others, that we simply don't act out of our own woundedness and make it all about ourselves or what you know, we can get out of it instead of focusing on fulfilling the needs in another person. So no, we don't have to wait until we have our act together before reaching out to others. 
Now, if you've been uh, listening to me for some time, um, I'm now in my third year, um, I've shared this story with, with you all before, and it's a, a lesson that comes right out of intercessory prayer, which is praying for others, okay? And uh, I came across a fascinating study one time, and I have yet to find a better story. And uh, the study, you know, as I said, focused on the power of prayer. And so um, a group of researchers got together and they took a group of about 50 people who were struggling with some form of cancer, who also believed in prayer or had an active prayer life. Okay. And uh, this group of 50 people were separated into two groups of 25. And they told both groups for the next 30 days, I should say, they told one half of the group, 25 of them. For the next 30 days, just pray for yourself. That's all you need to do. You know, just pray for yourself for 30 days. And then they told the other half, the other 25, they were told to uh, pray for the other 25 people in this other group, unbeknownst to them. So here you had, uh, you know, a group of 50 people struggling with some form of cancer who believed in the power of prayer split into two groups, and 25 of them were told just to pray for themselves, and the other 25 were told to pray for the other 25. Don't pray for yourself. Pray for the others, okay? And they're not going to know that you're doing that for them. Well, after 30 days, they interviewed both groups. And they discovered that the ones who prayed for themselves didn't find any changes in their outlook in life. In fact, some were even more emotionally miserable than before. But for the group who spent time praying for the other group, who had no idea that that that's what was going on, that group had a more positive outlook on life. They felt better even though they still had their, their cancer, uh, but they admitted to being more peaceful. They admitted to being happier, being more content. And therefore, the implications for the study on intercessory prayer were, were just multiple, including the fact that people can pray for one another and reach out in compassion and um, you know, provide comfort to others. In other words, we all have giftedness and skills that are not meant for ourselves. And yet, how many times we often underestimate ourselves, but when we truly see ourselves as perhaps being an answer to another person's prayer, everything we do then is so that the people will live. And not just live, but live in peace, live in wholeness, live in hope. Well, um, a few weeks back on October 5th, uh, Yom Kippur was uh, celebrated among the Jewish populations and Jewish communities. And uh, Yom Kippur is understood as a time of starting over. It's a clean slate. It's a, a newness. But how do people live that out? How do people walk in this newness? How do they behave knowing that they have a clean slate? Well, many people want to live lives of purpose and meaning, but often fear knowing how to do this, or they're so embroiled in the belief that so much of life has beaten them down, 
that they struggle to find a reason to care, let alone get out of bed in the morning. Well, if you've ever been to Broadway, if you've seen the Broadway musical Les Miserables, uh, it was one of the main characters, Fantine, who sings this sentiment that I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell that I am living. So different now from what it seemed, now life has killed the dream in me. Finding hope in life from where I sit has to be one of the major themes that come up in counseling therapy over and over and over again. And I truly sit with others who struggle to heal from their past and in their own way and time work through very painful memories. More than just feeling stagnant or stuck in life, uh, people also wrestle with a sense of hopelessness or a feeling that life is meaningless. But the truth is that we're not alone in this life. We come, we all come from a long line of ancestors who are cheering us on, shall we say. And we have many, many more ancestors who will come after us. Again, think about the people who didn't wait till they had their lives healed and sorted out, but rather reached out and healed others regardless. And also, someday, future generations will be reminded of us. I mean, just can you imagine? They're going to look back and say, whoa, those people lived in 2022? What was going on in that year? You know, but they're going to be reminded of us and how we lived our lives and the struggle we did you know, had to remain faithful to that which we've been called. But for all of this and more, do we ever stop to consider the kind of impact our lives have and will have on generations to come. Again, this was something that my Native American teacher taught me when I cut my finger. And, um, you know, he reached over, he grabbed my finger, and he goes like, who do you see? And I just, I, I stumbled. I didn't know what he meant at the time. And it was a lesson of, you know, do you see your ancestors in that single drop of blood? And I'll never forget his words. He said that once you can see those who have come, you know, before you, you will also be able to see those who will come after you, those who are alive but are yet to be born. They're all there in that single drop of blood. And it totally changed my outlook. It just, I don't know what happened, but it just a total transformation had just taken hold of me right then and there. You know, I just, I couldn't look at life the same way. I couldn't think of death and dying the same way. I couldn't think of my ancestors the same old way that I used to think of my ancestors. So in creating a living dialogue with one's ancestors, we're going to have to remember that our sole connection with them is not about placing blame or finding fault for wounds suffered from intergenerational trauma. You know, it's, it's not this, uh, well, thanks for that you know, or why couldn't you get your act together? And, and why does it have to fall on me? You know, why do I have to be the one, you know, that has to deal with this when this occurred centuries ago or decades ago? You know, that's bitterness talking. That's, that's just straight up bitterness. That's resentment. That's not gratitude. But instead, um, our soul connection and creating this living dialogue with our ancestors 
It's intended to create an ongoing opportunity for healing and reconciliation. Okay, it's an ongoing opportunity, as well as stopping, you know, the harmful psychological, emotional, and spiritual patterns from being passed on to generations, even generations yet to be born. Because many times this requires us to think beyond a linear approach to our families, you know, this past, present, future. But being the transitional generation, that's the generation that says, you know what? I understand now why this intergenerational trauma landed on me. Because maybe I'm the one that can do something about it. Maybe I'm the one that can heal, not just myself from it, but I can heal the ancestors. I can heal it from going forward any further. So this being the transitional generation does require us to stand in the gap, as it were, and offer release not just for ourselves, but also for all family members, regardless of whether or not they were perpetrators or victims. And, uh, you know, for example, I have friends who we often sit around and talk about intergenerational trauma and healings and so forth. And um, we helped each other share stories and, and so forth. But uh, I have friends who set their intention to heal intergenerational trauma from the perspective of the unborn generations. Okay. Um, you know, it's not so much looking back seven generations to heal the souls that are stuck due to the trauma that, uh, that they're embroiled with, but they place themselves in the role or the voice, shall I say, of seven generations into the future. So now let's say a person, for example, was born in 1980. Okay. And the effect of healing intergenerational trauma uh, would then impact generations up to the approximate year 2145. That is, if the, if the trauma occurred in 1980, okay, or somewhere thereabouts. Uh, now, from this perspective, the need of healing intergenerational trauma is now crucial if the next seven generations are to be empowered to begin their life on earth free from traumatic baggage and needless family suffering. So let's say the first generation um, is the parent, you know, born 1980. The second generation would be born somewhere around 2005. That would be the children. Uh, the third generation would be born in 2045. That would be the grandchildren. The fourth generation in 2070, you know, that would be the great-grandchildren the fifth generation in 2095, the great-great-grandchildren, and then you go up to the sixth and seventh generation until you hit the year 2145. Approximate, okay? So we're dealing with approximate years here. But you can see that what happens, in, you know, in 1980, or even what happens today, just figure that a generation is uh, 25 years or so, somewhere thereabouts, 25, 30 years that there's a new generation that's coming. And then uh, multiply that out seven times. And the you'll get to see the effect of unhealed intergenerational trauma that will have on all those generations up until, if not more, uh, that seventh generation that one who has yet to be born, but now dealing with it. So it is fascinating, and it's just a very sobering thought that a lot of people just 
you know, how do I heal? Um, but still, many people ask me, how do I heal, you know, intergenerational trauma when I don't even know my present family, let alone connect with ancestors and those who have yet to be born? And the answer is that we find that in the religious and social ceremonies or rituals that bring us back into a spiritual, psychological, emotional, and physical alignment or awareness with God, ourselves, and our relations. And that no matter what nationality or race or ethnicity or region we are from, every culture has their own unique celebrations. Many ceremonies mark transitions in our lives, such as graduations, weddings, funerals, and so forth. And other ceremonies are more seasonal and follow a yearly observance, you know, birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, solstice celebrations, and so forth. In fact, this weekend is Halloween weekend. And although children are getting excited to dress up in costume and run around and get candy, there's a greater celebration right on the heels of that on November 1st. Now, in some cultures, it's referred to as All Saints Day, and in other Latino countries, cultures, it's also called the Day of the Dead. Both celebrations are there to commemorate the spiritual connection people have with those who have died and have gone on to heaven before them and are still considered to be connected with people by their soul and blood. And in Christian circles, there is an understanding that the saints who now reside in heaven are part of a great cloud of witnesses or the communion of saints that, you know, have that connection with people. So regardless of when a particular ceremony is observed or whether or not people feel connected to their community, there is always this universal teaching often hidden within the rituals that can be applied to all of humanity. And Mel Madrona, in in the book um, just certainly explains this quite well, that the purpose of religion should be to help us maintain a binding commitment to spiritual awareness within the lives of our communities. And this is done through the power of ritual, which is the materialization of religion, or the bearer of religious tradition, or the ensurer of continuity of the life of the present with the original spirit of the past. The reenactment of traditional ritual in worship by, you know, provided by religion ensures that the past, our ancestors, continues to touch our bodies, our flesh, and to reach into the hearts of our souls. Well, I'd really love to hear your heart on this matter. So again, if you'd like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after this break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. Be back with you in one minute.
All right. Welcome back. I'm Dr. James Hauck, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Again, I just want to share a quick word about my next show in two weeks. It's uh, Friday, November the 11th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm going to be talking about the three levels of pain. Namely, there's there's more than just three, but I'm just going to focus on the three here. Uh, the somatic pain, which is uh, an aching or gnawing, even sharp pain, such as headaches or the cuts we experience and so forth. And then there's visceral pain that deals more with pain that comes from the internal organs and blood vessels, typically found in the abdomen or chest or intestines or in pelvic areas, and uh, neuropathic uh, pain that uh, is caused by damage or injury to the nerves that transfer information between the brain and the spinal cord. And many people experience this through like a numbness or a loss of sensation. But there is also a phenomenon called total pain, which captures more of a multifactual pain and suffering that people experience. And Dame Cicely Saunders, uh, back in the day, defined total pain as the suffering that encompasses all of a person's physical, psychological, social, spiritual, and practical struggles. So tune in on Friday, November 11th at 3 p.m. for Tranquility of the Soul, Tranquility for the World. Well, early in the show, we were talking about uh, creating a living dialogue with our ancestors, you know, not just those who have come before us, but also those who will come after us. And can we see everyone whom we are connected to? And just like my teacher said to me many, many years ago, do you not see all the generations of those who have come before you in whose blood your blood carries the DNA of their lives and yours. More than just every characteristic of genes, can you also see their personalities, their character strengths, their flaws, their struggles, their fears, their triumphs, their joys, their mistakes? Can you see their souls when they took their very first breath? Can you see them before what we call time, that instant when the Creator dreamt them, even you. Because once you see those who have come before you, then you will also be able to see those who come after you, those who are alive but are yet to be born. They are all there in that single drop of blood. And right before the break, I shared the question, well, how do you heal intergenerational trauma when you don't even know your present family, let alone connect with the ancestors and those who have yet to be born? And the answer is that the religious and social ceremonies and rituals always bring us back into a spiritual, psychological, emotional, and physical alignment or an awareness with, with God, ourselves, and other relations. No matter what nationality or race, ethnicity, or region we're from, every culture has their own unique celebrations. Well, I want to share with you another story about a time in which I had uh, the great privilege of being a part of a religious ceremony, a cultural ceremony, in which was uncommon to my own, 
but I've learned just a tremendous amount of wisdom and just the connection of those who have gone on before us and those who come after us. And the example I'm talking about is that in every August, the village of Picaris Pueblo in New Mexico holds their Harvest Festival. And during the celebration, there's endless ceremonies commemorating the connection you know, that the people have with God, um, the abundance from the land, and the love for their community. There are religious services, foot races, indigenous drumming, singing, dances, and of course, sharing meals together. And, um, you know, it's, it's for one day only. They just can like open it up to anybody who would like to come and celebrate with them. And the first time I attended this celebration, I was struck by the large 25 to 30 foot wooden pole that was erected in the middle of the town. And on top of this pole were tied a sheep's carcass, a blanket, and a watermelon. Now, the elders who were kind of taking me around, showing me some things, they explained to me that these items symbolize God's provision of food and clothing and connection to the land. And the culmination of this festival uh, involved retrieval of these items by dancer clowns who were all dressed in black and white. And apart from reminding the people of the importance of laughter and play as they work their way through the crowds, it was the main responsibility of these clowns to climb the pole and recover these items. Now, in good comic fashion, the clowns would make several valiant efforts to climb the pole. You know, they would swing from the ropes or stand on each other's shoulders, and sliding down and trying again and sliding down and trying again, much to the amusement and encouragement of the crowd. Well, finally, after several attempts, one clown would reach the top as cheers erupted from the crowd below. And one by one, the items would be lowered and received with joy. And as I sat there watching, I was reminded of the teaching that surrounded this ceremony, that unless the clowns retrieved these items each year, the people would die. And I thought that strange initially, you know, I just like, what kind of teaching is this? I mean, after all, the community couldn't live off exclusively on a watermelon, a sheep and a blanket. There's got to be more to it than this. And then finally, the meaning of the ceremony hit me. That really failure to retrieve these items was not meant to be taken as a literal death, but rather it is what dies within the people as they live is what matters the most. See, apart from food and clothing and shelter, really the, the real issues that we cannot afford to live without are hope, love, gratitude, inner peace, and grace. These virtues are the true life-giving gifts that nourish and sustain the soul that far exceeds material possessions. Because ceremonies and rituals contain deeper levels of meaning, succeeding generations need to learn the relevance ceremonies have for them to live in their soul consciousness. And by doing so, nothing is taken for granted in this life. Not one breath, not one sip of water, nor one opportunity to bring healing from trauma in another person's life. Everything 
and everyone are connected. Well, these days, obtaining you know ancestral information is is made much easier with the assistance of like online searches and and in working with intergenerational trauma and ancestral healing, I often encourage people to work with three to four generations to start. Okay, and ideally, going back seven generations creates a more thorough context for healing to occur uh, because it's based on the seventh generational principle that originated from Native American Iroquois nation. And the principle taught that every decision, albeit individual or from society, must consider the impact on the seventh generation. And it writes, The thickness of your skin shall be seven spans, which is to say that you shall be proof against anger, offense, actions, and criticism. Your heart shall be filled with peace and good, and your mind filled with a yearning for the welfare for all the people. With endless patience, you shall carry out your duty, and your firmness shall be tempered with tenderness for your people. Neither anger nor fury shall find lodgment in your mind, and all your words and actions shall be marked with calm deliberation. In all your deliberations, in your efforts at lawmaking, in all your official acts, self-interest shall be cast into an oblivion. Cast not over your shoulder behind you the warnings of the nephews and nieces, should they chide you for any error or wrong you may do. But return to the great law, which is just and right. Look and listen for the welfare of the whole people, and have always in view not only the present, but also the coming generations, even those whose faces are yet beneath the surface of the ground, the unborn of the future nation. Now, although this principle of the Iroquois nation emphasizes the effect present decisions have on seven generations into the future, I believe it also provides us a social context to be able to heal seven generations of people who have come before us, whose decisions are affecting us today. So let's return to this example that every new generation begins approximately every 25, 30 years. This means that the seventh generation of our ancestors would have begun somewhere 175, 210 years ago. So again, Let's say a person is born in 1980, his or her ancestral context map would look like this. The first generation or their parents would be born, would have been born somewhere 1950, 1955. The second generation going back, you know, the great grandparents would have been born somewhere between 1920 and 1930. The third generation, somewhere around uh, 1905, 1890, such as the great-great-grandparents, and so on and so forth, and you work your way back seventh generations, which would put somebody who was born in 1980, they would put their seventh generation ancestors back somewhere between 1770 and 1805. Interesting how decisions that were made even then, the impact that they have on us today, or the impact back in the 80s or so forth. 
So again, these are numbers that you can, you know, have uh, interesting time with as you take your birthday and then just understanding, you know, the generations about every 25, 30 years and go back and trace what was the kind of living like? What was the world like back in the 1700s, the 1800s? And what kind of decisions that they would have made that have an impact on us today? Well, one thing I've learned is that uh, soul healing and release of those who have been traumatized is not just the work of a select few, but all people have the potential to heal their own ancestral relationships. And I meet so many people who want to stop the cycle of intergenerational trauma, but they are just at a loss as to what they can do. But nevertheless, the best place to begin the journey toward healing is to first examine their own symptoms and situations in life. You know, look at the problems they struggle with in time and time again that they just can't get a handle on. And for me, what began on a mass scale of releasing land and the souls that were held by the energy of intergenerational uh, trauma and uh, Montauk, Long Island, uh, was also achieved on an individual basis in working with my own family of origin. Because in my life, it was a struggle with anxiety. But as I probed deeper, I became aware of my unconscious fear of being trapped or suffocating. And um, once I, I realized that, I just, for months that I knew, I had to return to an abandoned mine where over, over 40 coal miners were killed in a horrific gas explosion. And this was also the place where my grandfather had died from a falling rock as he was mining some 12 years later. And at that time, my father was only two years old, and he grew up without his father. And so when I stood at the mouth of that now demolished mine entrance, I drummed quietly and I offered tobacco prayers for these men, their families, and the surrounding towns. I, I felt the, the traumatic pain and the heaviness that the land held, as well as the emotional burdens that generations of families from other coal mine accidents carried for so long. And ironically, although I was seeking healing for myself, Little did I realize that there's was going to be healing for many, many others. So I sat there, and uh, like I said, I had my prayer ties, and I just uh, sat in silence after a while. And I, I asked for forgiveness for the bitterness and any other negative emotion I harbored in my soul against my grandfather and my father. Yeah, in that moment, I realized that perhaps my father was simply incapable of meeting you know, emotional needs either as a parent, uh, because his father was not there to meet his emotional needs. See, his father's death may have also contributed significantly to my father being a very quiet, reserved, but also a very anxious man. In fact, all of his life, my father struggled with the attitude that there was or is something that could always go wrong. And he could never put his finger on it, but he always felt this free-floating anxiety of impending doom. You know, don't get your hopes up. Don't get too carried away, because you never know. And it fits because of the coal mining accident, because it was very traumatic. It came without warning. And 
you know, again, to be down in the mines and to, to suffer that kind of head injury that killed his father, my grandfather, that, you know, just trapped the family in this intergenerational trauma of anxiety. So I also asked for forgiveness for the negativity and the bitterness I was holding on to regarding the effects that this trauma had on the family, as well as the fact that nobody talked to me about this trauma as a child. You know, it's just like, what happened here? Oh, we don't want to talk about it. You know, or, you know, like, what, what was my grandfather like? Well, he was just, he was a good man. He was a coal miner. And that was it. You know, and perhaps, you know, in hindsight now, perhaps they were too overwhelmed to put into words their memories of that day because they were stuck in their own trauma. Well, furthermore, after I asked for forgiveness, I also thanked my grandfather for his hard work and sacrifice. You know, maybe he didn't have a choice but to work in that mine. After all, the coal mining was the mainstay of the communities back then. Perhaps his mother and father struggled with their own emotional pain, knowing that their son was going to work in the same mine that 14 years earlier was the site of this horrific explosion that killed 40 men. I mean, can you imagine he having that conversation with them and saying, I don't want to go to school, I don't want to go to college, I'm going to go work in the mines. Well, nevertheless, I, I thanked him for his dedication, especially when his body ached and the times that he feel like he did not, or I should say, he didn't feel like going to work. I thanked him for coming home each night to his family and scrubbing up before dinner and washing the, the cold dirt, you know, and just watching it being rinsed from his hands and body. And I thanked him for what he did day in and day out. Because people like him and others working in the mines provided for and sustained the economic energy at that time. And finally, I said, I loved him, even though I never met him, and I was honored to be his grandson. And although not a coal miner myself, I could sense the metaphorical coal dust in my veins. And I was reminded as I laughed at myself, uh, the times as a boy, I would always dig in the dirt and return home and was ordered by my mother to take a bath before dinner. <laughs> I wonder where I got that from. Well, after I finished drumming and praying and asking for forgiveness and, you know, what I needed to do, I saw my grandfather come up out of the mouth of the mine, dressed in his work clothes and helmet, covered in soot and holding his lunch pail. And as I caught a glimpse of him, he was immediately taken up to heaven, just whisked away. And to my surprise, other coal miners followed. Like one by one, those who had died in other mines were being released as well. They climbed out, brushed off their excess soot from their bodies, and then whisked away to heaven. And to me, it seemed as though hundreds of souls, perhaps from other coal mine accidents, came up out of this portal. And my, jo my soul swelled with joy as I sat there quietly watching these men being transported to heaven. Well, once the last coal miner was transported to heaven, I sensed wave after wave of an incredible peace just wash over me. The traumatic energy of the land had indeed shifted. 
and I breathed in just the freshness of love, life, and light. And interestingly, as I was driving back on the highway, coming home, sipping my coffee, minding my own business, trying to fathom everything that I had just seen, all of a sudden, this image flashed before my eyes. I saw my grandfather, still dressed in his work clothes, but this time I saw my father, standing as an adult. And they were standing arm in arm, smiling and laughing, reunited once again. It's true that life can be filled with many tragedies and heartbreak and pain, but there are times of celebration, joy, and hope that far exceed time and space. Well, I'm Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Again, I invite you to join me in two weeks on uh, November the 11th as we take a look at total pain and how we can still find peace within our soul that has peace for this life as well as uh, throughout the world. So in the meantime, everybody take care, um, behave yourselves, and um, may God bless you. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to ReclaimingAuthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific Time on PBS Radio TV.